All right, we are back. We need to talk about some other stuff. And you know what we're going to need to do this week is there's so many things going on, so many things we wish to discuss. We're going to create an extra show this week. We'll probably knock it out in a couple days, and we may have some perspective by that time on what the hell just happened in Beirut. I got a posting out of Chico recently showing some footage of that explosion, to which the commentator said, oh, definitely a bomb. Adding, was it the Mossad or the CIA? Well, President Trump referred to the explosion as an attack, but uh, the Pentagon has not confirmed that. And as I stand before the microphone today, it seems the most likely explanation was that there was a fire in a warehouse, and one of the warehouses had fireworks in it. And that somewhere along the way, the 2,700 tons, tons of ammonium nitrate that had been stored and I guess forgotten about, made for a very bad combination. My limited understanding of explosives uh, says that you really can't ignite ammonium nitrate with a simple fire, but fireworks might do it. And 2,700 tons of ammonium nitrate? Timothy McVeigh took down the Alfred P. Murrah building in Tulsa with 5,000 pounds of fuel oil slash ammonium nitrate mixture. In Beirut, they had 1,000 times that amount. And apparently, when ammonium nitrate explodes, it's, well, it's not quite TNT, but it's something like 40% of TNT, meaning that this blast would have had the equivalency to about 1,000 tons of TNT. Yes, a kiloton. The atomic blast in Hiroshima was 13 kilotons. It seems to me it's the kind of thing you shouldn't just leave around in a storage bin. Mr. Milne points out somebody could get hurt. Now, we shouldn't make light of it. Something like 70 lives were lost in this fiasco. Now, the question is, is there more to the story? I did receive another email suggesting that there is a trial in the International Criminal Court of several members of Hezbollah that's about to do, that's about to come down, the the, the verdict in the next few days. Hence, speculation that, um, well, maybe Hezbollah had something to do with this. They did take out the, I think, former president of Lebanon in an explosion involving a truck, not too far from where this thing took place a few years back. That's what they're on trial for. I don't know. It's complicated. We don't know enough. We need to find out more. Boy, and it was this week back in 1945 that the United States did drop successive atomic weapons on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. We reported on the show some years back about a Japanese man. I think, I think there were actually seven of them, but there was at least one particular Japanese man who was present in both cities. Mr. Whelan points out there's a documentary about about him out currently. We've not yet seen it. We probably will by the time we speak next. I've seen half of it, and it's very good, the half that I saw. It's called Twice. All right. Well, we'll know more soon. Since we're slowly getting rewound up here for a second half, uh, I think this might be a good time to do the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to the Week magazine, it was a good week last week for sizeism. At least that's the label they put on it. With the news that the city of Venice has formally lowered from 6 to 5 the passenger limit on the city's iconic gondolas because of the increasing weight of the average tourist. I think read American. Said gondolier Raul Roverato, going forward with over half a ton of meat on board is dangerous. 
Well, on the other hand, a bad week for transparency, I guess you'd say, with the news that the Republican National Committee spent $4,000 for face masks in June, but listed it in campaign finance filings as building maintenance. The wording may reflect conservative resistance to mask wearing, at least that's the speculation, but former Republican FEC Chairman Bradley Smith called the description entirely appropriate, saying the masks, quote, are a safety measure akin to repairing emergency exits, unquote. And no, we don't see it either. And it was an ugly week for Q a couple weeks back after Twitter disabled 7,000 accounts dedicated to spreading the QAnon conspiracy theory, which, among other things, holds that JFK Jr. is still alive. He faked his own death and is working with President Trump to round up a ring of child sex traffickers, including Hillary Clinton. Mr. McMillan? Now, we'd like to point out on this program that the very term conspiracy theory is itself uh, pejorative because it lumps together investigations that are legit with things that are, frankly, crazy. But we're going to have to use, I think, uh, the whole QAnon thing. We're just going to refer to it as conspiracy theory and, and leave its implication of the tinfoil hat crowd, you know, in place. LA Times wrote about QAnon a couple weeks ago and noted that the QAnon conspiracy theory was found on the belief the world is run by a powerful gang of evil politicians and celebrities, including the Clintons, the Obamas, the Bushes, George Soros, and Hollywood celebrities, including Oprah Winfrey and Tom Hanks. The theory has been laid out by an anonymous figure known as Q, felt to be you know, likely a group of people, who leaves cryptic messages for followers to decipher on the website 8KUN. Q previously posted on 4chan and 8chan, C-H-A-N. I'm not sure how this is eventually pronounced, but doing the best I can. Q's followers believe that once they convince others, there will be a great awakening. Now, unfortunately, Donald Trump has been known to retweet various things that have been posted by QAnon. This whole thing apparently got its start back in the uh, unfounded Pizzagate theory of several years ago. These folks seem to make regular appearances in other propaganda that's being peddled, uh, things like the uh, Plandemic video, which portrayed the QAnon people as heroic. And we seem pretty sure, for our part anyway, that uh, a lot of the activities of these folks has something to do with why a lot of people in the U.S. are skeptical of the COVID-19 death toll. Oh, it's being exaggerated, I, I hear from a lot of otherwise intelligent people. But my God, are we in the middle of... Well, we're in the middle of two pandemics. There's the viral pandemic, and then there's the informational pandemic, which unfortunately is very much related to the viral pandemic. I was discussing that America's Frontline Doctor video with my friend who's still in the trenches out in the Central Valley, and he sort of thought it was amazing these people were being taken seriously. You know, in addition to that one video on the steps of the U.S. Supreme Court, prominently featured that doctor who believes that endometriosis is caused by sex with demons. One of the less crazy-looking doctors in that video subsequently did another video piece featuring her on the steps of Cedars-Sinai Hospital in Los Angeles, where she was spouting statistics about Cedars-Sinai and explaining why this fit her various theories about what was going on. This prompted Cedars-Sinai to come forward afterwards and say, we have no such physician on our staff. 
And of course, one could argue that, well, she never said she was on the staff. She just appeared in front of the building acting like she was. In view of all this propaganda, the uh, Washington Post uh, published a, uh, a piece by Margaret Sullivan that said the following, you may have heard about the viral video featuring a group of fringe doctors spouting dangerous falsehoods about hydroxychloroquine as COVID's wonder cure. Given this and a few other hideous developments, it's time to acknowledge the painfully obvious, to acknowledge the painfully obvious. America has waved the white flag and surrendered. With nearly 150,000 dead from COVID-19, we've since, we've since passed that, we've not only lost the public health war, we've lost the war for truth. Misinformation and lies have captured the castle. And the bad guy's most powerful weapon? Social media, in particular, Facebook. Now, for the bigwigs from uh, Silicon Valley, or actually, in this more properly, the tech giants representing Apple, Microsoft, Facebook, and Google appeared before Congress. We must take a look at that in the not-too-distant future. But, oh my God, is Facebook a potential problem I would go so far as to say that next to Brad Parscale and possibly Vladimir Putin, the person that Donald Trump's going to depend on most to get reelected is most likely Mark Zuckerberg. More on that later. Among the archive files maintained for this program are some old articles that I think I need to cite at this juncture. One's from 2016 and one goes back to 2006. Let's go back to the 06 article, which was in Vanity Fair written by Todd Purdom. The article was about Karl Rove. It is Karl Rove, probably more than any other single individual, that was most critical to the election of George W. Bush as president. And Karl Rove's secret, back in an era that predates big techs, big data, was learning everything you could about a person's individual characteristics, how they leaned how they thought, and you could tell how they leaned and how they thought, or at least get a good idea of it by paying attention to things in the public record. For example, if you live in Palm Beach, Florida, the odds are increased that you are a Republican. Todd Purdom's piece notes that from early in his career, Karl Rove has been an expert in direct mail techniques, fine-tuning just the right message to move just the right voter at just the right time. And he has always sought and found villains gays, unions, trial lawyers, liberals, elitists, terrorists, that his candidates could use both to crack the electorate at a vulnerable spot and define themselves in sharp relief. Writing in 2006, Purdom noted that today's Republican coalition of Main Street, Wall Street, Easy Street, and the Highway to Heaven is less a natural alliance united behind broad principles than an unlikely aggregation pushed together by fear of the alternative's skillfully stoked. Purdom noted that for Karl Rove, all politics is partitive. There's almost nothing he can't explain by slicing up the electorate and slotting it into place. Divide and organize. Divide and categorize. Divide and conquer. Even as a college Republican in the early 70s, Rove advocated not only for precinct organizations on campus, but also for dorm chairman and even floor chairman. He was an early computer nerd and numbers cruncher, and as a young Republican operative in still Democratic Texas, he helped develop the best voter lists, the best fundraising lists, and the best political database in the state. And always, everywhere, he won by splitting, using whatever he needed as a wedge. This is written in 2006, but it's obviously still relevant today, or should I say more relevant than ever today. 
By 2004, the Bush team under Rove identified which websites its potential voters visited and which cable channels they watched. It spent its money accordingly, advertising on specialty cable outlets such as the Golf Channel and ESPN, whose audiences, not surprisingly, tilt Republican. In this way, Rove could reach out to potential Republican voters who lived in otherwise heavily Democratic neighborhoods and who once have been missed in the the get-out-the-vote efforts based on neighborhood or party registration alone. When, for example, the campaign learned that the sitcom Will and Grace was wildly popular with younger Republicans and swing voters, especially young women, it larded the series with its commercials, buying 473 of them. Purdom notes it was a neat trick. The Bush campaign managed to ratchet up turnout among a core group of voters by touting the president's proposals for a constitutional amendment banning gay marriage, and at the same time to attract another group of voters by running commercials on a television comedy that sympathetically portrayed urban gay life. Here's something especially interesting in this particular article. Purdom notes that at almost every turn when others in the White House or Republican Party have counseled reaching out to larger constituencies, Rove has pushed the opposite course, consolidating and building the Republican base. I think it's fair to say that Rove has led the way on how to do this, and now let's bring big tech into this, shall we? Hence the piece from 2016, in this case from New Scientist magazine, article by Chris Baryniuk, titled The World Wide Warp. What he noted four years ago was that quirks of the social web can make falsehoods spread far more widely and more quickly. What's more, it was noted, this misinformation can change long-term opinions. Indeed, writing in 2016, Barry Anuk noted that some worry that the internet is turning into the biggest mind control experiment the world has seen. You may think you're savvy, but there are armies of people out there equipped with technology, all promoting their own version of reality. Marketers, lobbyists, activists, extremists, they all depend on being able to sway opinion. And with the social web, it's easier than ever. The World Economic Forum ranks massive digital misinformation as a geographical risk alongside terrorism and failure of global governance. Politicians, too, are learning how to use online promotional tools to their advantage. This is an article from February 20th, 2016. I think it's fair to say that Brad Parscale was able to use online promotional tools to the advantage of Donald J. Trump. The article quotes Bruce Scheider, director of the Electronic Frontier Foundation in San Francisco, as saying, we're entering an era of unprecedented psychological manipulation. But the manipulation can be subtle and often hard to notice at all. Now, it's a fact of human nature, and noted in the article, that uh, people tend to ignore information that challenges their views. They cite a study of 55 million Facebook users and found out that of 50,000 posts debunking rumors, only about 1 in 12 reached people who had shared the rumor in question. It's a good example of confirmation bias leading to an echo chamber. Information that does not fit with an individual's worldview does not get passed on. And on social networks, people trust their peers and use them as their primary information source. Said Bruce Schneier, the role of the expert is going to disappear. And of course, one key to making this really work for you is to create fake people to spread disinformation. Bots, phony accounts. The Russians are really good at this. And of course, so are a lot of political groups. We've been talking about AstroTurf groups on this program for years. 
And boy, have they come into their own on the web. The New Scientist piece notes that one way to get your point across is to invent a wave of support or dissent. Advertisers, political groups, and even governments have been accused of this. Peace notes that last year, Chinese journalist Chai Jing released a documentary called Under the Dome, which suggested that pollution in China's cities was the reason her unborn daughter had developed a benign tumor. The video went viral along with many comments endorsing her view. It wasn't long, though, before the Chinese government had the documentary removed from various websites, and the move coincided with a wave of negative social media posts about it. David Holmes from Monash University in Australia, said it's likely these were written by the government-sponsored, quote, 50-cent party, unquote, a group believed to be paid for their posts. Bruce Schneier of the Electronic Frontier Foundation said the ability to understand who your audience is precisely and target them is unprecedented and dangerous. He thinks this kind of manipulation should be made illegal. Well, that doesn't seem to be likely in the future. Anyway, since this article was written four years ago, uh, you know, this stuff is 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 everywhere. This Karl Rove technique of slipping a message to somebody who's not likely to challenge it because they already agree with it has really, really been refined. And by the way, I think it's fair to say that a lot of what we're seeing today dates back to uh, a well-funded campaign against science that started, I think, with um, the Christian right and its creationist movement. It's since then been picked up by corporate America to challenge things like global warming. And it certainly appears that uh, across the Atlantic, over in Russia, they have um, adopted this technique with a vengeance. The Week published a piece titled, From Russia with Lies, in the last week of 2018. The subheadline is very interesting. It said, a potent Kremlin propaganda machine seeks to make ordinary citizens lose faith in the very idea of truth piece by Joby Warrick and Anton Troyanovsky said it's succeeding in Russia and in the West, too. The article starts out with the botched assassination attempt of Russian Sergei Skripal in London. Peace notes that within hours of the failed mission, according to British and U.S. officials who closely followed the events, a very different kind of intelligence operation was underway an elaborate fog machine to make the initial crime disappear. They note that false narratives and conspiracy theories began popping up almost immediately, the first 46 bogus storylines put out by Russian-controlled media and Twitter accounts, and even by senior Russian officials, according to a tabulation by the Washington Post, all of them sowing doubt about Russia's involvement in the assassination attempt. Two days after the poisoning, the Russian news agency Ria Novosti was already quoting an anesthesiologist saying that the matter of Skripal's poisoning suggested he was a drug addict and an overdose. On March 8th alone, pro-Kremlin news outlets published five phony narratives about the events in Salisbury, with Salisbury, not London, offering explanations for Skripal's illness that included an attempted suicide by Skripal and his daughter, and a chemical weapons leak at the nearby military laboratory in Port Down. The article notes that providing further amplification are social media troll factories where hundreds of workers are paid to disseminate false stories on the internet under official direction. Russian politicians and diplomats then chime in, often ridiculing any official investigation and denouncing claims of Russian involvement. The Twitter account of the Russian embassy in London echoed several of the false stories from social media, suggesting that Skripal was a British spy and theorizing that British military scientists had synthesized their own batch of Novichok with, with the help of Soviet chemists who had defected to the West. 
An independent survey was conducted of Russians to see how they viewed how they viewed the events that had taken place in Salisbury. The result was that three in ten of Russians surveyed said they believed Britain was behind the poisoning, while fifty-six percent agreed with the comment it could have been anyone. And of course, there's no reason to believe that Russia is confining its disinformation campaign to its own citizens. According to the LA Times, an article from 72820. Russian intelligence services are using a trio of English language websites to spread disinformation about the COVID-19 pandemic, seeking to exploit a crisis that America is struggling to contain ahead of the presidential election. That's according to U.S. officials, who evidently remained on background. The piece notes that two Russians who have held senior roles in Moscow's military intelligence known as the GRU have been identified as responsible for a disinformation effort reaching America and other Western audiences, according to, quote, U.S. government officials, unquote. And the article notes they did speak to the AP on condition of anonymity because they were not authorized to speak publicly. Between late May and early June, according to one of the officials, they published about 150 articles regarding the pandemic response, including coverage aimed at either propping up Russia or denigrating the U.S., This disclosure comes as spread of disinformation, including by Russia, becomes an urgent concern heading into November's presidential election. Here's the quote I like. U.S. officials seek to avoid a repeat of the 2016 contest when Russia launched a covert social media campaign to divide American opinion and to favor then-candidate Donald Trump over Democratic opponent Hillary Clinton. An effort that President Donald Trump himself has berated Barack Obama for not responding more promptly to in his interview with Mark Thiessen, in which he purported that he had done much better in 2018 to protect the U.S. uh, electoral process from Russian involvement. CNN published a piece on July 31st about how a former KGB spy was talking disinformation tactics in the 2020 election referred to Jack Barsky, a former KGB spy who lived undercover in the U.S. in the 1980s. He explained how it was done back in his day in an interview with CNN Business. I don't think there's any reason to believe Russia's going to stop doing this. I mean, why would they? But the piece also noted that at the height of this summer's nationwide protest over racial inequality in the U.S., a Twitter account claiming to be from Antifa called for violence on America's streets. The account was held up by President Donald Trump's son, Don Jr., to support claims that Antifa is dangerous. It later emerged the account was not run by Antifa at all, but instead by white supremacists apparently seeking to sow chaos, just as the Russians have long done. And I also have a piece here that was sent to me by, well, Edward McMillan. (laughs) Titled... Follow the money, how digital ads subsidize the worst of the web. But I'm just worn out talking about this for right now. I'm going to put this off till the next program. But uh, I do want to clue you in that uh, Facebook and Google are mentioned prominently in the piece, and they don't come off well. We're looking for good news somewhere in the midst of all this. I've got a piece here that actually is some good news that we might want to close the show with. My doctor friend made mention of the uh, movie from 2011 titled Contagion and how prophetic it was as regards to a lot of what's going on currently. So I finally did uh, sit down and watch Contagion, which I understand has been the single most popular thing viewed in America in the past six months. It is indeed an interesting movie. 
the writers of the script did not foresee a lot of the things that actually have taken place in the United States. And of course, like all productions from Hollywood, it tends to um, it tends to overly simplify some things. I believe in the movie, a vaccine is developed for the virus in question in something like 130 days. That's not realistic. Let's just say this. If you start with that 2004 60 Minutes episode where they tracked down Peter Dayzak and talked about how he was uh, tracking coronaviruses in bats and other related viruses, uh, and it had some success in halting the Nipah virus, well, that plays right into what happens in the movie and what happens in the movie is a link to what's happening today. It's it's sort of a it's a, it's sort of a there's a there's a depressing continuity there. But in doing some research about the movie Contagion, I was stunned to find an article in Forbes explaining how the billionaire behind the movie Contagion is working to stop this pandemic and also the next one. To quote from the piece in Forbes, Jeff Skoll has been funding pandemic preparedness for more than a decade, longer than Bill Gates. In recent months, he's increased his philanthropic giving to help combat COVID-19. They note that nine years ago, Jeff Skoll's film company, Participant Media, partnered with Warner Brothers to put out Contagion, a movie about a global pandemic that started with a virus from a bat. An American businesswoman comes home from a trip to China and unknowingly spreads a novel and at times deadly disease. While many viewed the film as pure science fiction, Skoll had ulterior motives. He hoped, he hoped the movie would help build support for funding the U.S. Center for Disease Control and also warn the world about potential dangers of a global pandemic. It looks like he was incompletely successful. Skoll, 55, became a billionaire just over two decades ago as a result of stock he received as eBay's first president. He left eBay in 2001 and has since co-produced more than 100 films and TV programs, all with socially relevant themes, including the climate change documentary An Inconvenient Truth featuring Al Gore, something we talked about on this show, a factory farming documentary Food, Inc., which we also talked about, and the miniseries When They See Us, and the 2016 Academy Award Best Picture Spotlight about the Boston Globe's investigation into child sexual abuse by Catholic priests. Beyond backing a movie about a pandemic, Skoll's been funding pandemic preparedness and prevention since 2009, six years before Bill Gates' now well-known TED Talk warning about them. That was through the Skoll Global Threats Fund, which he pledged $100 million. You gotta like this guy. The pandemic research that Skoll started funding through the Skoll Global Threats Fund spun off into a nonprofit called Ending Pandemics in January of 2018, with a seed grant from Skoll. The president of Ending Pandemics, Dr. Mark Smolinski, said it's all about early detection and rapid response. (laughs) Sorry, I have to laugh at that one. Yeah, it is all about early detection and rapid response. And if you flub both those up, then you find yourselves in the current pickle we're in. Anyway, Skoll got wind of the novel coronavirus early on, back in December, where it started. We had colleagues on the ground in Wuhan, he said, We had an idea that a zoonotic disease had jumped to humans. By January, he and his team began to be concerned about countries with trade ties to China. In early February, the Skoll Foundation made its first COVID-19-related grant, $3 million to the African Field Epidemiology Network. Skoll also connected with California Governor Gavin Newsom and his senior advisor on social innovation, Kathleen Kelly Janus. 
The Skoll Foundation is donating $8 million to support California's response to COVID-19, starting with $4.1 million for the public awareness campaign around contact tracing, which Jane has said will be really critical to preventing a second wave of COVID-19. Anyway, we're just about out of time. I do want to note as regard uh, Gavin Newsom's recent optimistic forecast that maybe we're turning a corner on this, that, well, it's now widely noted by health authorities that there's been some lag in the data. and They don't know whether that adequately explains the current leveling we're seeing. I tried to do some research as to how much of the testing in this country is by antibody test and how much of it's by viral testing. And it appears that at the moment that is a hopeless mess. The two data sets really cannot be lumped together if you want to make sense out of what is going on. Then I guess one of the punchlines out of all of this is that there are people out there that don't want us to know what is going on. After all that testing, it just makes us look bad. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. You have been listening to Radio Parallax. We will probably, I think, have a second version of the show later this same week. And if we don't, we'll see you next week. In the meantime, stay safe, and you know what to do. Keep your guard up.